You're listening to a Flower Pop production. Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're good and I hope you're ready to have an honest conversation about money because today I'm going to introduce you to Fanny Snaith. Now, Fanny is a money coach, but she didn't become this until in her 50s. She did all different jobs and shows how sometimes twists and turns may not always be what we want at the time, but they can take us to exactly where we're supposed to be. Fanny speaks honestly about her past and how when her family lost a lot of money, this drove her to take control of her finances. She gives great practical advice about what to do if you're struggling, but most of all, she believes we should all not be scared of money. We should treat it as an adventure and tackle it with courage and curiosity. Fanny believes we all have it in us to create exactly the life we wish and she gives wonderful advice on how we should do this. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter. Or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Fanny Snaith. Fanny Snaith. I mean, I just said I love your name. I just, I absolutely love your name. And I'm so excited to talk to you this morning on the next chapter. I'm very excited to be here and chuffed to bits that you invited me. Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. So, but as ever, we start with our prologue. So you grew up, you were born in London, then you moved to the Isle of Wight. Yeah. And then, am I right that you went, you came near Bristol? Yeah, I was, I went to um, Churchill School. Which is what in between Bristol and Western Supermare. Yes, yes, it is. How I got there is um, quite an interesting tale, really, because yes. um, before that I was at a boarding school in Sunningdale. Ah, okay, yeah, I know it. So yes, so we had a, we had a, I had a very that that very early part of my life was quite an interesting time of that moving from London to the Isle of Wight to then moving back up to Bristol, sort of thing. So lots and lots of stuff happened there, but yes, I was eventually. Um, thrust with great, great velocity into Churchill School and um, went there until the end before moving to Bath to go and do my A-levels. Okay, okay. Now, is this the fact that, um, because you said that you did sort of have an interesting start, but your mum married and divorced three times. So is this connected to you moving around a lot? Well, yeah, sort of. So do you want me to tell you? Please, please. We love the ins and outs, Fanny, here. We love the ins and outs. (laughs) So um, mum, my dad and mum went to drama school together. They went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, where I also went, by the way, which was just coincidence, really, apart from a small threat from my father that if I'd accepted to go to any other drama school apart from that one, he wasn't going to give me my monthly allowance. (laughs) He was right. right. Quite right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, mum and dad got married. And shortly after they got married, mum inherited quite a lot of money from her father when her father died. Uh, That was just shortly before I was born. And the thing is, both of them were very different when it comes to money. Mum had absolutely no idea how to handle money. And dad was one of these people that would literally write everything down and manage everything to the last penny. 
And when this large sum of money came um, into their lives, it, it really didn't it didn't work for them because they were just so different. And it ended up with um, them splitting up when I was one and my older sister was about three. Wow. So that was that. That was marriage number one. Done. Um, then mum met another man, which is hence the move to the Isle of Wight. And um, that was a very interesting marriage. Uh, <clears throat> it wasn't particularly pleasant um in the home because they used to fight an awful lot and we lived in this huge house on the Isle of Wight we had um and it was you know pretty well pretty wealthy we had our own little forest and swimming pool and beautiful walled kitchen garden and things like that but you know things go on behind closed doors and it really wasn't a very nice environment to be in which resulted in mum sending my sister and I off to boarding school in Sunningdale um when I was seven and my older sister was what nine ten something like that so we went then what the interesting part of that was was that you know I left the house at in 1971 or whenever it was and um, thinking that I came from a wealthy family and literally crossed over that threshold into boarding school and really very much felt like the pauper Um, you know we had all sorts of celebrity children you know children of celebrities there and it was sort of like I was the youngest boarder there and um, it was a very interesting experience and I had to learn very quickly to toughen up put my armor on and um, realize that I had gonna was gonna have to cope with quite a lot of stuff and so did my sister my sister was the same so spent three years there in the meantime mum back home was uh, ditching husband number two and uh, was moving on to husband number three, who happened to be her bank manager. Wow. And um, he already had three sons because uh, his wife had sadly passed away. And they got married and it was all like, yay, everything was fine. We inherited three stepbrothers and moved up to the mainland only for him to have something happen, which I have to be a bit careful what I say because nothing's been proved. But Essentially, we sort of discovered that he had been blackmailed in some shape or form and had given all of our money away and all of his mother's money away to this this complete stranger um, who was from London. So we came out of boarding school very swiftly. And I remember sitting down at the kitchen, the dining room table when my mum had said, well, you better tell them what's happened. And uh, we sat down at the kitchen table and he basically told us that we had no, we didn't have any money. So um, I was 10, skipped a year of school and ended up uh, joining the free school meals queue at Churchill Comprehensive, which was the local state school. Now, don't get me wrong. Churchill was a was a really good school. You know, I was very lucky to be able to go there. But by jingo, it felt different from where I had been. Um, obviously the marriage then broke down Um, there was no way that it was going to sort of survive and we ended up moving our separate ways splitting up the two families splitting up again and we ended up in this small damp cottage which again was uh, I'm very very grateful for I don't want to sound ungrateful but it was very different from where we'd been before however interestingly I don't remember ever laughing so much in my mm, life. It's interesting, I, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's because we just relieved so much pressure. So by that by that age, I had experienced all sorts of things, you know, all sorts of feelings and emotions and 
um, situations where it came to money. And how that culminated and probably why I am here where I am today is that when I was standing in that free school meals queue, I was also extremely tall at that point. I'm not that, but I was. I seem to remember I was the tallest person person in the first year, um, which we called them Year Seven now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And um, even though I was the youngest, because I was only ten when I started secondary school, Mum fought tooth and nail to get me in. And I remember standing in that free school meals queue, not knowing a soul and feeling that everybody was looking at me. They probably weren't, but it felt that way. I actually felt, remember feeling very much like Big Bird from Sesame Street. Do you remember Mm, Big Bird? Yeah, I do, I do. And I was extremely angry. And I remember remember feeling this huge wave of anger because I spoke quite nicely and didn't have that Bristol accent because obviously I'd come from near London, you know. People looked at me and thought that I was the rich kid, where actually we didn't have a bean. Mm. I remember standing in that free school meals queue and saying, do you know what? I am never going to be beholden to anybody for money when I grow up and I'm going to become a millionaire. Mm. And I remember I remember saying that. And um, I think that planted a seed in my in my mind, even though I didn't really know what it meant. I didn't have any kind of strategy. Um, probably millionairedom felt like a thousand million miles away. It was quite a significant moment in my life, which, um, you know, has, has sort of played out. So, yeah, that's how I ended up being in Down the Road from You. Amazing. But, I mean, thank you for being so open, Fanny, because that was a lot going on there, you know, for such a young age. So you were around about seven, were you, when you went to boarding school? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That, that in itself, though, there's a lot of change and and tra- and trauma. Mate, can I say? You know, the fact leaving and then just very very disruptive. And and at school, what I mean, you said you were a bit naughty and a bit of a rebel at school. But but you know, were you interested in numbers at this stage as well, or were you interested in school in any shape or form? Ellie, I didn't even get I didn't even get a maths GCSE. Wow. Well, there's um, hope for us all. So when I was at boarding school, they used to put us in classes according to our to our age, no, to our ability. And so I was I was very good at reading and English and all that kind of stuff. So that was good. Um, But I was a bit of a rebel even at boarding school. because I think I just wanted to try and impress people, really, to try and be liked, to Mm -hmm. try and fit in and to try and be liked. When I got to Churchill Secondary School. I was the big I am. I'm not going to deny it. It was I, I come from boarding school. I knew way more than everybody else did. I didn't have to work that hard because we were covering things that we'd already done. And it was all a bit of a joke and a bit of a laugh. And I was probably, again, still had my my armor on. Yeah. And just wanted to be liked, just wanted to fit in and just <laughs> wanted to impress, really. Mm. So I became... I was sort of a bit like the class clown, really, and didn't really, didn't, I just didn't, I wasn't particularly interested. I loved drawing, but I was very good at drama, and um, I always got good parts in the school plays, and absolutely loved that, threw myself into that. Uh, But as far as academically was concerned, it was always very much, my real name is Francis, it was Francis Treat School, a bit like a social club. 
Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, really, is there, Fanny? There's nothing. But but I can understand maybe why your teachers got a little bit frustrated. And actually, this takes us into your first chapter because you did want to be an actress and there were actors. You came from a theatrical family. Yeah. So I, I, I sort of... It's really interesting as well, right? Because I think... I think it's really... Saying really a lot this morning. I think it's important for us to remember and piece together who we were at the very beginning of our lives and who we become over time. And I have a, a memory of me always wanting to, to be an actress. But looking back now at somebody who's nearly 60, I actually, and somebody who's done a lot of work on all of my personal development, who I am and all this kind of stuff, I actually think, did I or did I just want to do that because my mum wanted me to be? Mm. But I I did have the satisfaction of feeling all the way through my school life that I had didn't have to worry about what I was going to do because that's what I was going to do. I was going to be an actress. And like I said, I got I got the main parts in pretty much all of the school plays. And even if I say so myself, I was quite good. Very good. And so I really, I wanted to go off and do drama A-level, but I couldn't do that at Churchill because they didn't do it there. But because I'd started school early, they wouldn't let me leave. Mm. So I had to do a year in the sixth form, which just brought out my rebel even more because I didn't want to be there. So by the time I ended up at Bath Technical College, uh, I was absolutely raring to go. And it was, it was wonderful going there. But then what happened was... Um, I lost my nerve a little bit and uh, there were all these people there that were fantastic at acting and I'd always sort of been a little bit like the top top dog sort of thing and you know by before I was a big fish in a small pond and now I was a small fish in a big pond and I lost my nerve and David Holbrook who was the uh, course leader the man and he actually I think he actually invented the drama A level he was an amazing teacher he suggested that I tried a bit of stage management and I called it going over to the dark side. And I absolutely loved it. I fell into it like a pig in poop. Mm. And, um, and that's really where I stayed. So even though I had a yearning to be on the stage, I, I did excel and thoroughly enjoyed the behind the scenes stuff as well. Mm. Because I was a very organized person, a Virgo and all very organized and 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 good with budgets and money and that's when that I suppose that started coming out yeah and so just that so at this stage as well with in terms of your parents so did you always keep in touch with your dad your biological dad who was very or and your mum so what I mean what were they thinking about you wanting to do this so um when dad left he said, basically, he didn't want to see us until we were 18. He wasn't a big fan of children. He really wasn't and act probably shouldn't have had children. But, you know, hey-ho, these things happen. We, I saw him a couple of times, a few times between, you know, that sort of, you know, I, I mean, I remember seeing he used to come and take us out from boarding school every now and again. When I moved to London, which was after my A-levels, when I went to the Guildhall to do stage management, we started to get to know each other a lot better and we became very close to be fair. Uh, but he was never really sort of father material. I mean, he was delighted that I wanted to go into, into 
you know, theatre, television, wherever, whatever I was going to do. Mum, I don't think ever really got over properly that I wasn't going to be in front of the camera. She always wanted me to be the performer and said I should be the performer. However, she was also extremely good at, and I think, you know, we have to think about these things. My mum was also extremely good at telling me not to show off. Stop showing off, Francis. Mm. Which, if you're going to be a performer, you need to be a show off. And when somebody tells you not to be one, I think you get confusing messages in there. And I, I think I sort of, when I lost my nerve, I'm not blaming anybody because obviously we make all make our own decisions in life. Um, there was that sort of like, am I going to be good enough? Am I not going to be good enough? Am I no, no, no. Whereas going behind the scenes for me was like, you know, this is amazing because I can do this standing on my head and I, and I absolutely love it. And I'm a good leader of a team and I love leading. So it, every box was ticked for me. It wasn't as if, oh, well, I couldn't do really what I want to. I'm not thinking, didn't think like that. I absolutely loved the dark side. Mm-hmm, which is amazing. Can I just double check? What did your parents do? What did they do? Did they, what did your dad do? So my dad was, um, he was a producer for the BBC for the whole of his life. He worked uh, on Radio 3. He did programmes like uh, Friday Night is Music Night, Melodies for You and all those kind of things. But he was also a a light classical composer under the name of Alan Langford. Uh, Yeah, so he, I mean, he was just, but he was a proper BBC career man. Um, apparently he was offered all the Hammer House of Horrors at one point, but he turned them down, wow, which wow. is incredible. So from his side of the family, my second cousin, who I was extremely close to, was Clive Dunn uh, from Dad's Army. Mm. And also uh, uh, Gretchen Franklin, who played Ethel in EastEnders. Oh, yes. So, yeah, so that so we had quite a theatrical family. As far as mum was concerned, yes, she went to the Guildhall too. But when she came out, she she, she was a showgirl. She was a showgirl in Paris for a little bit and did very, she, she was more of a dancer than an actress. Had an amazing figure. Like to say I'd inherited it, but not so sure. I think you have there. I can see, Fanny, I, I think you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she, you know, she became a mum of three kids and... Poor mum, you know, when we look when we look back at our parents and accept that they did the best with what they had to give. Mum mum was never parented. Her mum died when she was six months old. Mm. And she was put into boarding school at seven, evacuated during the war. And actually, I think now part of my part of my mission has been to put a stick in the wheel of what she um of her behavior as a mother even though it was very unintentional so very judgmental uh, not very encouraging in a lot of respects because i think she wanted us all to be perfect because they were our, you know they were her three children she had another daughter after carrie and i um but i i think if she was still with us today after knowing all the things that I know now through my work as my in money coaching and as a therapist, etc., I would love to have a conversation with her mm. now. But unfortunately, that's not possible. Mm. Even it's only even in these last few years. I was talking about it with somebody over the weekend that that things are really like you've got podcasts. There's 
lots of people talking about things. It's changed an awful lot. And you can only do what, like you say, you can only do your best with what you have. And she didn't know about money and then had all that money there. And, you know, she couldn't control what happened with her husbands. And so it's, but then it's, but also these, the, it all has a, they all want to sort of the best for their children and it can sometimes feel a bit controlling and it's not meant to be like that but it's it's like you say it's only now years not that I'm a therapist but I think it's I find it fascinating Fanny I really really do and so you Mm. you um I mean obviously so the financial side of things was from that school line really stayed in with you so did you I mean so you said in your notes that you made a vow that you would become a millionaire which you did amazing so how did you do that did you do do that through stage management um no oh, there you go <laughs> well, our dogs are disagreeing no. <laughs> right. um yeah. did i do that through stage management that's a really interesting question because did i do that through stage management so what you i'm guessing what you mean from that is through the money that i received from stage management is that how i yes so not really i um it happened over a way longer than it should have done um when I came out of the guild hall I did a little bit of theatre work and then I I fell into because I, we were waiting to take a show abroad I fell into market research okay um as a telephone research interviewer which lots of resting actors and theatre and telly people do but wanted to, took the decision that I wanted to buy a house so I thought I better get a full-time job. So I applied for a job as the telephone assistant telephone centre manager so I could get a mortgage and get and buy a house. So that was a financial decision that I made. So I took a little bit of a swift detour from my career as my intended career, which is in theatre and television. So got the house, then ended up managing the telephone room, became the youngest telephone centre manager in the country designed a new telephone. I actually loved my time in in um, in uh, market research. And yes, obviously, that helped me to start building wealth because I was able to start investing, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So did that. I went away and lived in Australia for a year. And then I came back to England. And I got this really fascinating job with a com- company called Motive Force, who used to organise um, those sort of like reward schemes. So, for instance, if you work for an insurance company, you'd have a reward scheme saying so sell X number of insurance policies and you'll get and get some points. And then when you've got enough points, you can cash them in for a barbecue fork, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. through them, I started doing corporate events. So doing things like changing, uh, organizing the crystal maze. Do you remember the crystal maze? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, turning that into a corporate event. That was fun and things like the Krypton Factor, and it's a knockout, and those kind of things, and then fell into telly. So at all of these jobs that were coming through, I sort of took job to job to job to job, but when I wanted to buy property, I would go and get a full-time job, so it would be easier for me to get a mortgage, and that was how I managed to buy my second house in London as well. So I I have a mantra for me. My little methodology thing is um over budget and underspend so if you're thinking about saving money for a holiday um like this holiday that's in america now even though I, i'm using the same methodology i probably I'm, you know i'm 
it's not really quite so appropriate now because I'm not trying to save in the same way as I'm getting into my older years. But let's say I sit down on paper and I go flights, hotel, insurance, esters, all the things that you need to go to America. And it comes out to about 10 grand, let's say. I will budget 12 and save 12. And then just because of the way that I am and Neil is, we're not, you know, we're not that big spenders. We go to America and we'll spend nine, let's say. So that extra three grand would go into investments. Right. And if you think about that filtering down mm. almost with everything, your supermarket bill, your clothing budget, your everything, you it's a really great way to work because what it does is you always feel like you're in abundance. You always feel like you've got surplus because you're going, okay, so I can save this money because you realize you've done it before and you've done it before and you've done it before, done it before. And then you go, oh my gosh, I've always got some left over, mm. which which feels feels nice I call it um living your financial life on the front foot it's a lot mm. of fuss, fuss yeah there. but it, it absolutely well and we, look we'll come on to that but so so you did when did you then so moving into your next chapter you um I mean you said that you didn't think I mean you did you, you know you started then to have your money were you at this stage when you were buying your houses were you married at this stage no I didn't get I didn't get married until until I was 35 okay right so, so I, was, really I was on my own yeah which is what you had said you wanted to do you didn't want to rely on anyone or anything at all like that no and I well exactly and I think one of the key moments was as well it was probably uh I lost my job so I was working for a television studio in northwest London and we went on holiday and I remember we got paid by check then. Remember that? Yeah. Get your yeah, yeah. check and you'd have to go and put it in the bank and or send it to the bank or however you're going to do it. And I remember we got my got my wage check. I sent it to the bank, went on holiday, came back from holiday. And there were three messages on my answer phone. Remember answer phones? Yeah. And the first message was from my employer to say that the company had gone into an administration and I was no longer needed. The second phone call was from the bank to say that the cheque had bounced. Mm. And the third phone call was from um, my work again saying, when can we have the car back? Oh, no. And I was like, oh, my God. Now, Now what? Because I was earning quite good money then. And I'd just bought this house in northwest london in kensal green and i was thinking what the hell am i going to do and my dad came round and uh, he said i'm not going to help you out financially but i will sit down with you and go through the budget so that was a help and then another thing that really helped me with money was going way back actually i'd forgotten this was when i was in australia i was very lucky when i went to australia and i just fell into a job and i actually earned i earned very well completely unintentionally in Australia and then the last three months that I was going to be there I wasn't going to work at all and that sudden feeling of like oh my goodness I'm not going to be earning any money and I earned money pretty much all the way through since I was 11 years old always had a job since I was 11 even going through college and I suddenly went oh my god money stopped so I counted I worked out how much money I had I divided it by 90, which was how many days I had in my trip. And I said, right, your daily budget is this. And I would go, okay, so there we go, over budget, underspend. 
right? So my daily budget is this, spend under, and then you have a little bit more the next day. Spend under, and you have a little bit more the next day. And it got to be such a routine for me that in the end, I remember coming home with 300 quid in my bum bag, which was like amazing. Nobody came home from traveling for a year with money in their bum bag, and I did. So I think that's been a thing for me. I don't like to ever think about and 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 for those people who are listening and thinking, yeah, well, you must have been earning a fortune or this. I didn't. And for many, many years, especially when I gave up work to be with the girls, I was earning what, 25 grand a year. So I'm not talking about big bucks. Mm. I've worked from home part time for the last 23 years. Mm-hmm. And and just just to, before we move on, d- just to double check. So you say you work with television. So you were working with like the, with the Krypton Factor and the Crystal Maze, turning those into events. How did that lead you into television? So working for this company, I was really good at. Do you remember Word Perfect? I the, do. The, like, yeah. Oh my goodness! What uh, you know? What a, it was the just as before Windows came out with what they call WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. You remember that? <laughs> People used to talk about WYSIWYG. <laughs> be word perfect which was like white print on a blue screen it was ah it was really ugly anyway I was really good at it and uh, the company that I was that um was working alongside helping us with the events with the crystal maze and all that kind of stuff there was a television company called Julian Grant Television and he had written Julian had written a a script and a, 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 a treatment for a program that he wanted to pitch to all the major broadcasters and it was called Scavengers. And it was essentially a bit like a crystal maze in space where a team of scavengers would land on a disused spaceship of which there were loads littered around the the sky and nick all the good bits to take them and sell them. And I was look, I, and they wanted somebody to make this look good in word perfect because that's all we had. And I went, I can do that. And as I was doing it, I went, I want to work on that. I want to work on that. That's that show is for me. So I was um, luckily enough, lucky enough to be working with a chap called Andrew Norgate, who was, do you remember Gladiators? Yes. And you remember there used to be two guys in striped shirts. It was um, John Anderson who used to go, Gladiators are ready. But there was the other guy who was the timekeeper. Okay. That was Andrew Norgate. And I was working with him on the Crystal Maze and he worked for Julian Grant Television. So I said to him, Andrew, I want to work on this program. And he went, all right, OK, just just leave it with me. When there's an opening, I'll get you to send your CV in at the right time. So it all worked out. That phone call, though, that day where you have the three messages, when was that then, Fanny? That was 19. That was way back. That was right. 1997. Oh, OK. It was a long, a long time before. Okay. So I was still collecting money, as I call it. So trying to just build up. And again, that that goal of I'm going to become a millionaire, please, I must make it clear that it wasn't printed on my computer and you're going to be a millionaire, you're going to be. It was just a very tiny seed mm. that was planted in my subconscious. Mm. It, well, it was planted consciously but ended up in my subconscious. So there was nothing telling me on a day-to-day basis that I was going to be, and this is why therapy to me is so fascinating. There was nothing on a day-to-day basis that was telling me 
you're going to be a millionaire and you're going to be you're going to be completely self-reliant when it comes to money that was not something that was on my agenda at all but there must have been something subconsciously going on in my brain so when when you had your daughter how did the life change then did you change is that when did basically when did you become then a money coach and why did you become a money coach so connie was born in 2001 i got married in 2000 uh connie was born in 2001 i then thought what am i going to do so i went and did um i've been an operations director i've been a stage manager i've been a production manager so i knew how budgets worked what i didn't know were things like how i wasn't that cool on profit and losses and balance sheets and all that i sort of knew it but i didn't really know it so i went and did an elementary bookkeeping course and um remember the first lesson was how to write a check which I thought was quite interesting. So I did that. And then I ended up working for a wonderful company called the Empowerment Group, which was all about intranets because they were all very new back then. And I worked solidly for them part time for 13 years. Um, yeah, around that time. And then I started getting a little bit fed up with it. And because I was just sitting at home being behind the screen, bringing up the girls, had my second daughter by this point, bringing up the girls, and they were my biggest priority mm. without any shadow of a doubt. Um, I was very keen not to make any of the mistakes that my mother had made, mm. which again is a bit pie in the sky because we just do the best with what we've got, right? And things, you know, we, I nobody taught me how to be a parent either mm -hmm. however I was very happy to be at home and be with them and go to every single school play and every single sports day and always be there and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. which was great um it got to 2015 and I was 51 and we just moved to this house and I was feeling unrest within me that this was not what I was supposed to be doing. The girls were getting older and sort of thinking secondary schoolish sort of time now. In fact, Renna was just going into secondary school. That was our, my second daughter. And I was getting increasingly frustrated and was thinking, what on earth am I going to do? What shall I, who's going to employ me, for goodness sake? I've worked from home part-time. Who works from home? I mean, working home was just not a thing mm, then no, either. You know, thought of going back into an office or doing something like that was like, oh, God, what am I going to do? So I went to see a lady called Louise Jenner. She was called the Dream Job Coach. Oh. And I'd seen her at various networking meetings and things like that. And I went to see her and she she said, well, what do you like doing? And I said, well, I've always been interested in money. And she goes, OK why are you interested in money? And I sort of told her, and I'd also um, got interested in numerology and things like that. I don't know if you know what numerology no, is. No, I it's don't. So it's sort of a bit like astrology, but it's got, it's to do with numbers instead. So if you think of the numbers between zero and nine are like a toolbox and each number is in your toolbox, but each number has a different meaning or a different wow. use, you know, okay. purpose. Okay. And our, our what we call our life path number can sort of give us an indication as to maybe what our challenges and our 
strengths might be okay and my life path number happens to be an eight okay which is all about abundance and power and money so it doesn't always mean that it's going to be wonderful it can be just as much of a struggle mm. and also the interestingly eight is like two balls which like balancing on top of each other so really balance has been a big feature of my life as well so it all just seems to fit and she said well why don't you become a money coach and I went is there such a thing mm. and she went Oh, of course there is you can just teach people to it doesn't even matter if it is a thing or if it's not a thing anyway went on holiday read a couple of books that she suggested that I read came back and thought yeah I'm going to teach people how to be their own personal bookkeeper so that's what I did I started inviting people to cut for me to teach them how to look after their money and they came people on all different levels of wealth, people who had money that could, you know, people who could afford to pay me for a start. But what I noticed was, is that it wasn't the fact that they didn't have the ability to manage their money. They didn't want to for other reasons. Mm. And it was like, well, why would you not want to manage your money? How ridiculous you are, I thought, because I, of course, I was perfect managing my money. And then I thought, so it must be something that's going on in their brains that's stopping them do that. What could that be? So I started just studying it and just getting interested in it and reading about it and read a couple of books and then got online and found this place called the Money Coaching Institute in America and spoke to the CEO there, Deborah Price, and thought, oh, my goodness, what you're saying is just absolutely fascinating. So I then signed up to trained to become a certified money coach and at the same time realized that my relationship with money was pretty shocking actually in the fact that of the wealth that I had accumulated had been done through essentially a fear a huge fear of not being broke Mm. so what we're looking at there is a big away from motivation rather than a towards and it was at that sort of point in my life where I started things started falling apart really because I what I thought was how amazing I'd been and all this kind of stuff it was like I was realizing that what I had achieved was done with a coat of armor on and actually wasn't really coming from the true self it was coming from the thing that I'd had to build myself up to be in order to protect myself going through life from all these different things that had happened to me. And that's quite disturbing in a way. Mm. And um, I had to start doing a lot of work on myself, working out who I was, what I really wanted to be. And I'll be honest with you, it's been quite a long process doing that, culminating in me now becoming a trained therapist which again you know might as well learn a trade while you're doing work on yourself right well why not I mean there's so much to say there funny but I mean just just going back there I mean it's incredible so when you say that you had with the because it's just it is fascinating because obviously you know what you're saying like you had the armor when you were a child when you know with what happened there so that stayed with you and isn't that funny it's like a subconscious you don't realize it but it's like a cloak that so many of us do wear um and 
and then so you said you ha- had made your money, your your millions. Now your millions. Sorry. And was that a combination of what you had been doing up until then? But like you say, you know, just spending basically spending less than what you're earning, and then working with your husband. What does your husband do for a living? He's a he was a plumber, heating engineer. Okay, okay. So you were just working very, very hard. And no, no. Okay, not working very, very hard. Oh, just. Okay just working so let's think about where we were so we probably hit the seventh digit it was probably around 2010 i would say because i know it was before my father died and the money that i put into investments did really well the money that i the properties that i bought did really well combining that with over budget and underspending uh, and let, don't get me wrong, I was also privileged in a way in the fact that we had a holiday home to go to. So I didn't necessarily, you know, we went to stay in Mallorca pretty much every year. But we still went on trips to America and things like that and, all, you know, blah, blah, blah. But like, for instance, when I was bought a house in London, I bought a three bedroom terraced, uh, terraced house in Kensal Green. There was one of me. And I would then rent out, uh, I rented out one room actually for six years. So I didn't have to pay a mortgage in six years. Mm. But things were different then as well. Mortgage payments were low. It would, I'm not going to say it's impossible to do now, but I probably didn't have to make as many sacrifices in order to invest as people would make now. Mm. It's getting on, but we still had to make things like, three and a half times our salary and I did that on my own and that kind of thing it's it's making choices and certain sacrifices I've never been a big shopper I don't enjoy going out and having a wardrobe full of expensive clothes I I drive a I, I drive a 2004 Honda CRV which I absolutely love I bought it secondhand in 2012 for three and a half thousand pounds uh, so and I've hardly spent anything on it and it's absolutely gorgeous and you know it's a it's a real proper solid car for many people that would be oh well, you're just living in scarcity and lack I just don't see it like that it's a tin box that sits outside my house mm. that is very cost effective for me and I haven't spent thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds of having a shiny new car it just doesn't it just doesn't bother me it really mm. doesn't mm. you know and as far as living in big houses are concerned, yes, we bought quite a big house when we moved to Cheltenham, but we ended up renting it out to move to where we are now. And now I live in a two and a half bed semi-detached in Cheltenham in a gorgeous area. It's a lovely, lovely area. And I've got a five bed detached house down the road, um, which is rented out. And I'm, I prefer it here. The energy of this house here is to me, and actually numerologically as well is nice. It's got better energy to it than the house down the road. So I, I'm quite a wherever I lay my hat kind of person. Mm, mm. You know, things don't really, the dining room table that I've got out there is the dining room table that I can see in a photograph on my seat. But but I think that's brilliant, Fanny. And it, I mean, it go and I mean, look, I'm not a therapist at all, and this is proper amateur psychology. But you know, from what you were saying again, you just it sounds to me like you want. Um, it all goes back that you know you, you just want to 
a happy, secure home and whatever yeah. that means. And it's and we are, aren't we? We're, we've all been sold this myth when whenever it was the 80s or whatever that, you know, you buy the new car and you buy this and you buy that. And that is you're going to live happily ever after because that's what all the advertisers wanted us to think. But actually, right. but actually, it's not true. That said, living scared of money or feeling constantly you don't have enough money, that's not a nice way to live either. And so when you were talking about that, when you started to help people, People and people didn't want to. I mean, what what do you think were their blocks? What are the blocks, Fanny? Um, not good enough. Don't deserve. I'm rubbish with money. So it's you know. So we talked about the subconscious, the seed that I planted in my brain to become a millionaire. Mm. Well, if you can imagine the seeds people plant are going when their parents say to them things like, "You're never going to be a success." You're always going to be rubbish with money. You know, um, money slips through your fingers with, you know, whatever. And these things are the same kind of subconscious beliefs, mm. you know, that have the same kind of subconscious messages that get into your brain. And, and, and also, and this is where the therapy bit comes in, when I work with people around why they're not managing their money and i've got to be very careful because i love telling stories and i obviously have to keep it completely confidential especially now i'm actually a therapist rather than a coach because before it was easy to tell stories and now it's even harder but <laughs> let's say for instance somebody is gets very anxious around money which which has happened and it can it can take a physical kind of effect on you as well where you literally sweat and all that kind of stuff so they come to me and they go every time i think about money i'm really anxious now, it could be something linked directly to money, but the chances are is going to be a situation from before childhood, etc., where there may be a trust issue or um, not explaining this very well, uh, where, where money, money seems to be for a lot of people is a responsibility, right? Because we all want to be good with money, but yet we see it as being something that's very difficult. Um, it's a chore. It's boring. Um, all I want to do is I want to spend. And therefore, if I start managing my money, I'm going to be restricted in some kind of way. It's for the people that don't tend to manage their money. They tend to see that managing their money is a restriction rather than a method that's going to enable them to spend so much more. Yeah. Okay. Because it's just, it's just not perceived that way for those people that go, well, hang on a minute. If I look, start managing my money and start saving money and putting it aside, then I get so many more choices. But for those that don't, they see that somewhere along the line, there's a restriction or they're not going to be trusted with it, or they're not responsible or they're not deserving or they're not good enough. There's all of those kind of negative things now that doesn't necessarily have to be directly linked with money and for instance in my own story my own thing um my mum used to say to us she used to sit us down and actually tell us what a disappointment we were to her oh. so she used to you know she'd go I just want you to know what a disappointment you are to me oh funny well, it, look, it happens, right? And it's happened to millions of other people. And I think the more we start talking about this, the the more we can heal, mm -hmm. the more we can come through it 
and realize that it's not my stuff it's her stuff mm, right mm. It's in her mind I was a disappointment that doesn't make me a disappointment mm. it's only to her mm. right and it's looking at her but if somebody says you're constantly going to be a disappointment you're or you're you're constantly going to be like this you start to get a belief in your mind and I think that was linked to the sort of thing as to when she also used to say well you're you know stop showing off you're a disappointment and you're a show-off so that putting those two things together will make me feel or will help me to feel or encourage me to feel uh, inadequate, not good enough, etc. Now, fortunately for me, I rebelled against these kind of things because mum did such a showdown when it came to money when I was younger that I luckily I went against it a bit like Tony Robbins, you know, he he had all these horrible things happen to him in the childhood and he went, right, I'm not going to be like this. But not everybody does that. Mm. And probably most people don't. So they will carry these feelings of shame, inadequacy, not good enough. And it's really, really easy to project that into our financial lives because nobody teaches us about finances. Mm, mm, no, I totally agree. I mean, if someone's listened to this now, Fanny, I mean, there's so much here to ask you. But, uh, you know, I think especially women as well, I dare I say it, but I do think there's that, you know, and I I myself, you know, I've, I would definitely have always said, oh, I'm terrible with money. I've done lots of work recently to try and get like, to stop. I work with a coach and I've worked with a therapist to sort of really try and overcome this. But, you know, if you if someone's listened to this now and at just at the moment there and especially if we're now that we're just getting a bit older, say if someone's say in their sort of late 40s going into their 50s and they really they think, do you know what? But OK, but it's just too late for me, you know. And now you've got the situation where mortgages are going up. We've got the cost of living and people are caught up in worlds where there's holidays, where there's people might be even have private school fees, that are, you know, or they've got really caught up in things. You know, if, if you're if you're if someone's listened to this and they feel like their money world is completely out of control and they don't feel like they've got any way of earning any other money I mean to start off what would be the first thing that you say to that person well I think probably that situation happened to me when I lost my job and so that meant I was losing my car and losing my salary and I had a mortgage and I had all this I didn't have I didn't have um uh school fees at the time but the first step would be is to get clear, get complete clarity on the financial situation. I think one of the most difficult things for people to cope with is to remain in a financial fog, i.e. not having really much of a clue because they don't, you don't want to look at it. Why do you want to look at something that's going to feel very destructive to you trying to hold your life together right now? However, that fog is something that you put your head on the pillow with every every single night. And as day goes, as days and days go by, if you haven't got the clarity on that situation, one, there are two, a couple of things that can happen. One situation can get so much worse. But secondly, you could be giving yourself unnecessary pain where actually the situation isn't as bad as you think it is. And we, things could you could do things right now to actually help you stem the leak stop the bleeding whatever we like to call it um, and actually help you to feel better and actually help you feel more courageous one of the things that I encourage in what well, that I 
put out in my coaching is as I uh, invite people to treat their financial lives like an adventure. Because for those who use all the B words, um, boring, bothersome, you know, tie them in with bank statements and bank balance and all those B words. Let's try and ramp it up a little bit and bring in the financial adventure. And when I'm talking about the financial adventure, I'm not talking Dora the Explorer. I am talking Indiana Jones, because for sure, there are likely to be moments where you're running down a corridor with a fireball chasing you, knowing that you're going to have to dive into a nest of snakes at the other end. But look, Indy comes out the other side and we do come out the other side. But if I was to invite you to go on that financial adventure and bring out some C words instead of B words, courage, curiosity, confidence. Um, God, I'm trying to remember to think of them all now, but there, there are lots and lots of C words that really help us to move forward. Let's start from ground zero and let's think you're not expected to know anything. You've never been taught anything. You've, you've absorbed all these messages from your parents, from your childhood, however they were with money, by the way, and all these messages of what they've told you and whether you're a good girl or a bad girl or whether you do something well or you don't do something well or you're rubbish at this or you're good at that, etc. Let's just strip it clean for a start and let's just look at your money story and see what sort of things were thrown at you. And let's just pretend that you know nothing and start from the ground up and go, we're going to just take it one step at a time and we're going to get clear. But we're going to do it with a different kind of approach. Because I think that for those people who go, oh, my God, I'm going to have to do something about this. It's just going to be awful. It's going to be painful. Let's do some really nice priming of how it's going to be. Right. It's going to be or it's going to be terrible. What am I going to do? Actually, it's not always that way. It isn't always that way. Mm. And it can be a lot better than people think. Mm. And do you think as well that it's all tied into like a self-worth as well, Fanny, in the fact that um, lots of people, I mean, even whether or not you're earning money, you do work for an industry that doesn't pay particularly well or, you know, it's very easy to, and we end up feeling, oh, I think great, you're sort of just grateful all the time. But actually, we're getting to an age now where we have got lots of experience, we've got skills. I think it's very easy. I've seen it within the television industry a lot that, you know, it's very easy to get caught and you think, but this is the only way. But there's actually other ways as well, isn't there? There, there are, There is a whole world out there. Well, it's interesting. And as we're talking now um, in October 2023 and going through the situation that we're going through now with like massive mortgage increases, I mean, uncopable with. And what I'm seeing now are many people who have. I'm going to say winged it. Right. So you've got enough money coming in whereby you can take a quick glance at the credit card statement and sort of pay some money off as long as it's more than the minimum payment. It's fine. That sort of chugs along. And you take a quick look at the bank statement and it's OK. And then you go through the month. And then by the time you get to the end of the month, you, your salary is coming in again. And you've, you've been able to ride that for a good length of time. There are many people in that position now who are being forced to look because it's like, whoa, hang on a minute my salary didn't last a month now, what's going on? But I'd say a number of things to, to um, people in that situation is, 
one i'm actually even though i don't like the prices going up as much as you don't it's good that you're looking because if you put some attention to it now your money and thinking about your money you've got opportunity for real growth okay you maybe we've gone x number of years without having a look at it and yes you've probably lost out on years and years and years of building that lovely firm financial foundation another lot of s um yeah you probably skip that bit but you do have a chance to start doing it now so there are there are many people that are being shaken into the light that might have wanted to stay in the dark and it, when you talk about self-worth yes it is linked to self-worth but while everything's okay you don't have to think about it mm. and and i speak to many people who have gone you know i came from a really poor background and you know, I was a single mum in a council flat and now I'm earning 80 grand a year and it's been fantastic. But I'm suddenly thinking now, oh dear, I've got to look at this. It's all closing in on me a little bit. And I'm going, yeah. And then she's going, and now, I'm, and now I've got all these regrets because I could have done this years ago. Well, well let's not look backwards. Let's just mm. look forwards. Mm. There's no point in looking back and let's go forwards. So yes, self-worth is there. Um, but I think for people who get a nice salary at the end of every month it's not always shone put into the spotlight but money is for sure the place where it can it, money can take the blame yeah yeah or problems with our self-worth yeah. and absolutely and if someone's just listening i mean this is fascinating funny i could talk to you all day about it and i'm conscious of your time but if someone's okay. in that situation where they're saying well look my salary is not lasting the month now and then you right. might say but okay right so we what do you do do you save do you invest but actually do you know what i just don't have enough money to get through the month you know when yeah. what do you say to somebody who's entering who or who is in that situation so first of all it's a case of there are sacrifices that need to be made to stem the bleeding. The first thing is to try and is to stem stem the bleed. So going through, and this is like people, this is when people roll their eyes and go, oh, you know, do I really have to do this? Yes, you do. Is to go through your bank statements and work out what you can nip tuck. Sounds obvious, but it, <laughs> it is what you have to do. Is to go through and you, you sure you might have to not have the smartphone that costs you 85 pounds a month or whatever it is you're going to have to go for something cheaper or you're not going to be able to have sky netflix amazon prime and the disney channel you know cut those down all those kind of things and people can save hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds by doing that actually becoming aware of what of what they're spending cut out the deliveries cut out the just eats have cinema nights at home all those horrible money saving things to do however Trying, I think the thing that is a good thing to do is try and partner the value in um, recognizing what you spend your money on and actually do you really need all these things? Because I think, like you said earlier, we are marketed to in a way that to have all of this stuff and all of these things and all of these subscriptions is going to fulfill us in some way. And it doesn't. It really doesn't. And, you know, that was the thing when I hit the seventh digit, nothing really happened. And that was a big wake up call for me when it was like, actually, hang on a minute, all these things 
having this money doesn't really do anything. And it's like the same with having all this stuff around you. It, it really doesn't doesn't give you the fulfillment that you need. And if, it, if you do need it to fulfill you, my question would be what's missing on the inside that you can't get that without having to have all this stuff. Mm. So that's what I would do. First of all, try and stem the bleed. If once you've done that and you really can't stem the bleed, there's still a big hole. Like, let's say, for instance, you've got quite a lot of credit card debt. Obviously, the next thing is to try and get that credit card debt as cheaply as you possibly can through switching to a zero percent credit card. If you can, please don't miss payments on a credit card if you're trying to negotiate with them. Um, so if, just even if you have to just pay the minimum payment, pay the minimum payment. But again, if you're if you're in a position whereby you are you have got credit card debt at the moment and you can pay it off, please don't ever pay the minimum payment. Quick figures for you. If you have a credit card and you've got three thousand pounds on it at roughly 20 percent, which is actually quite an age old interest rate. They're higher than that now. But I'm just using old figures. If you pay the minimum payment every month, so it's going to go down slightly and you're not using the credit card, it'll take you 26 years and nine months to pay off. Wow. If you are literally to pay the minimum payment this today and keep it at that minimum payment so that you fix it at whatever 70, 80 pounds a month of whatever it is, and you pay that amount every month, it'll take you five years. That's crazy. So say that again, Franny. If you say so, if you're just paying the minimum payment, say of whatever it is would be, then yeah. but you set something a bit higher, you yeah. can just whip it down in just as much smaller amount of time. Yeah. So the credit card companies work out this algorithm whereby you can you get the longest time possible to pay it off. Yeah. But it's also going to cost you the most amount of money. Yeah. Whereas if you don't do that. Yeah. Say, for instance, the minimum payment for you today, Ellie, is £70 a month. Yeah. And you've stopped using the credit card. You've taken it out of your wallet and you put it into a tin can, filled the tin can up with water and you put it in the freezer so you can't actually use it. Yeah. And you take the time to actively um, defrost it. <laughs> so in, instead of so next month, the minimum payment might be £68.30, right? Because you're not going to pay off much because so much of that £70 is going to be interest. Yeah. Right. So if you are to if you keep that payment to 70 pounds every month until until the debt's paid off, you're going to shave off about 20 years. Wow. So if you keep your hang on. So I'm st sorry, Fanny. This is so if you keep that payment. So say it's 70 pounds a month, the minimum payment. Yeah. What what should you pay to shave off all those years? Well, as much as you can yeah. is the ideal answer. But if you were to, if the minimum payment, if you read your credit card statement today and it says the minimum payment is £70. Yeah. So you pay your £70. If you were to look at your next month's statement, it might say the minimum payment is now £67. Right. Most people would then go, oh, I'm saving three quid. I'll yeah. just, yeah. But if you were to just keep the minimum pay, keep the payment keep every the, month at £70. Okay. Even when it says it's £40, right? a bit of £70, you will pay it off around 20 years earlier. That's crazy. Yeah, and you will save yourself a lot of interest. Because they are used to you just letting them kind of say, and then you go along with them, and then they keep you hooked in, basically. 
Well, somebody's got to pay all the people at the credit card company, haven't they? Yeah, they do. They do. Thankfully, we've got you now, Fanny, so it's not us. So it's not us. Fanny, this is so fascinating. I could talk to you about it all day. Yeah, I mean, it's something even in my books, my fiction books, I've explored a bit in one of them because it's such a topic and I'll keep doing it because I think it is, and it's liberating for, for especially women to just, like you say, it's, it's that fog. It's coming out of that fog. But but anyway, for your to be continued, you know, what would you like to do next? You know, I know you're developing the self-wealth project, which sounds amazing. And also you're very much into teaching younger people as well about this aren't you oh yeah I I have a calling but I haven't made it work yet so I don't know if anybody who listens to this can think about it but I haven't I've done a few deliveries to schools um I really enjoy it but I I, I do I absolutely love it but I know it doesn't sound like it but sometimes I have a little bit of a confidence things going on which is what I'm working with now so but I would really love to be able to go into schools and have a program whereby we talk about self-resilience so really taking charge of our self-worth our self-esteem etc um using our ourselves as the tools rather than looking at or looking at the external world so looking at our internal Mode, modes of control rather than looking at how we how we react to the outside world and then to help young people lead their financial lives on the front foot right from the get-go a bit like I did really um, and to help them do that and help them to know that they do that but have it in their brains that it's okay that they don't have to go out and want to have this great desire to be to be rich and to be wealthy Mm. that's what I want to do I'd love to work with children and I'm I'm a mentor at the moment for a company called um yeah a charity called Young Gloucestershire oh yeah and uh I mentor a young person who's 13 which I thoroughly enjoy and um yeah any all the work and I worked as the business advisor for the young enterprise scheme at the local school for three years which I loved as well so that's got to be my next thing. But I'm also really enjoying the therapy work as well, mm. which is fascinating. So I'm going to have some therapy rooms in Cheltenham when I come back from my holiday. That's amazing. And so, like you say, but so intertwined, isn't it? The way we, we don't realise that, that we this thing about money, it's like we haven't got enough, we haven't got enough. But actually, in today's world, we probably, we probably do have enough. It's just what we're doing with it and how we're looking at it. And we don't have to live the way that we're living, but we think we have to. I, I suppose that's what it is yes um and then, you know there are lots of people let's forget let's remember there are many many people who are struggling mm. but I'm also a firm believer that you know we've in order for us to get out of that struggle we've got to leave certain parts of the media alone we've got to move away from listening to it and listen we've got to we really have to think about this is the situation I'm in how am I going to change it what am I going to learn what am I going to change in my life to change this situation? And I know that there'll be plenty of people sitting there going, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this. And I get it, right? And it, it's hard. It is hard. But generally, if you want things to change in your life, you, you have to take that leap and change things for yourself and I mean, I, you know, but a bit like when I was 10, I have, I've had a job since I was 11 years old, 
became financially independent, i.e. not wanting money from my mum, etc., from a very young age. And it came quite easily to me. And I know for a lot of people that it doesn't come easily to, but that's what challenges are all about. And challenges make you stronger. Mm. And having that courage and the curiosity, clarity, confidence, those kind of things, just if you can approach something from ground zero or from, from, you know, from a real, like I'm at the bottom of the ladder kind of thing, I know nothing. What do I need to learn? Things can only get better. Mm. I love that you're in Deanna Jones description i think that's amazing it really is because it it is not necessarily easy but if you turn it into an adventure so your acknowledgements fanny who would you like to thank who are the people who have helped you along the way i in some respects i need to thank my dad even though he was a lousy father he did actually give me <laughs> give me some hints <laughs> on on he you know i've inherited some money stuff from him which was which is good i've inherited some stuff from him which is not so good but yeah he sort of got me onto the fact that it's important and all that kind of stuff i think again teachers along the line have been amazing for me david holbrook who was at uh, bath technical college and a lady uh, called susie copley who was my stage management teacher at the guildhall school of music and drama i don't know if she's still with us actually but she has this thing that she used to do and people aren't going to be able to see me, but she used to go, just think ahead. And <laughs> for those who can't see, I, I've got my both my fingers pointing towards my ears and I'm winding them around as if my brain is going around and I'm going, just think. And then when I go ahead, I'm pointing forwards. And she, she always used to do that. She goes, just think ahead. Because with television work, stage management work, you have to think ahead. And I think that it's the same when it comes to our financial lives. There's a famous quote from a writer called Ayn Rand. And she said, money is simply a tool and it'll take you wherever you wish to go, but it will not replace you as the driver. Mm. So the question is, who's driving your financial life? And if you're sitting in the back seat with a blindfold on, don't expect to go very far. She didn't say that bit. That was my yeah. bit that I added on the end. Yeah, well, that's a good bit. That is so true. I can relate to it. I think I think the people that I'd like to thank most of all along the way have been people on my personal development journey um, of the different courses that I've done. Deborah Price from the Money Coaching Institute. It's just been a huge learning curve, which I started. I didn't start until my until my 50s. I wish I'd started it a, long, a lot earlier, um, but no regrets. But if I can help other people to change, to change things earlier, then that's really what I would like to do. Mm, well, you absolutely are. And it's funny, isn't it funny, that everything, you know, from that beginning, what you're saying about you wanted to, you know, not be reliant on anyone for money, but then even like with your drama and then that you're sort of now with working with people and communicating with people and telling stories it's all kind of related and then you're now you're going to have your own therapy rooms and that's all around your home so it's you've created everything you have created a life that you love doing and helping other people as well which is just amazing so if if somebody is listening to this so we've talked a lot about sort of money and presumably as well would you advise just going back to that if someone is struggling to, that on a, it's always good to just know each day like you say know each day how much money you do have to spend and budget and not you know just to 
take note of the fine detail in life as well, rather than like you say, sit in the back seat and just hope for the best. Um, but if you're listening, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, do you know, I just want to do something different in my life, a bit like how where you were feeling 13 years ago, where you just when you are, you know, you sort of just wanted to change. But equally, they're thinking, I just can't afford to do anything different because I've got a job that sort of pays the bills as it is now. And I'm full to my limit with time as well as that. What would you say to that person? What are the simple steps they could start making to start making the change? I probably think about I think what people what you need to do is you need to think about your values. So for those for people who don't want to manage their money. Money isn't usually very important to them. So, uh, you know, they don't, it doesn't, it doesn't rank highly. So for instance, if I think about my values, top of my values in my family, right? So it's, it's what I've done in my life. Wealth has come very high in my values. Honesty, leadership, those kind of things have been high in my values. So I would have a look at what, your values are and think about how you can if you want to if you want more money in your life think about what of your top values will help you shift money up so for instance if your one of your values is that you love travel travel costs money so you can't have the travel without the without the money so therefore if you use the value to uh, the the money the travel to underpin the money it can help you bring it up so for instance we've all got 24 hours in a day and we will go well i just don't have time because i've got to do this and i've got to do that and i've got to do this i've got to do that where are your boundaries so do some boundary work and have a look at that um and say what's more important is it more important that i do x y and z or is it more important that I read a book or sign up to a Udemy course? Or I remember being on a workshop once. I used to deliver workshops to um, the long-term unemployed during lockdown in London online. And there was a guy there and I talk about different topics. I talk about mindset, paying off debt, all that kind of stuff. And I remember coming up with um, doing the paying off debt one. And there was a guy who didn't have his camera on and he kept chirping up and saying these amazing things. And I stopped halfway through the talk and I said, how do you know all this stuff? I said, everything that you're saying today is so valuable. And he said, well, well I, I got myself out of this huge amount of this huge amount of debt and I'm halfway through it now. And I said, are you not working at the moment? He said, no. And I said, why don't you become a money coach like me? And he said, well, I'm still in debt. And I said, so I said, all you need to do to help other people is to be a couple of steps ahead of them. You don't need to be a, an expert with a qualification in this, 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 that and the other. You just need to be a few steps ahead of somebody to help to, to help them. And he went, oh, oh. And I think that's probably hopefully what he what he went off and did. You know, I think it's about thinking a little bit out of the box. So. Talk to other people. I would say, go and have a conversation and go, look at my life for me from the outside, can you, for a second? Can you give me a bit of a heads up of what I can do? There was another lady and she was a wheelchair user. And 
she was saying how she made jewelry and put it on etsy but etsy was um was making uh took a huge amount of money from her profit and she said she wanted to uh, make tote bags you know those little square tote bag things and i went oh that's a good idea i said you know what my daughter loves a tote bag and she's she's doing her a levels at the, at the moment they're fantastic because they fit in a laptop and they also fit in a couple of files and then we got into this amazing conversation this was on one of these workshops as well we got into this amazing conversation whereby we were uh, letting the students she was going to go down to the local sixth form college let them design their own so she put a design on the front of it for them put a pocket on the side so their id card and everything go on the outside and she was it was like it was fantastic and she was so inspired and off she went down to the local secondary school and started making designer tote bags for the students you know which gave her 100 percent of the profit and it was work that was easy for her to do and work that she loved and she was getting a sense of the community with the young people and a relationship with the school mm. so i think sometimes it is it's just thinking outside of the box a little bit and it's very easy for us to go and I, i've done it you know i've done it is we sit there and we go well i'm this is my lot and i'm stuck with this I can't, what else can I do? What else can I do? Ask the question and then literally let's go and find the answer because there will be an answer somewhere along the line. What one small thing can I do today to help move me forward? And it may not be a huge thing. It might be that I don't smoke or that I go for a walk when I haven't been for a walk. Or it may be that I go to the library and I get a book out and I read half a page. Mm. You know, mm. just just something to move forward. Yeah. And also, I think as well, Fanny, just to finish off, but something that, that I've struggled with as well is that actually people are willing to pay for something good. So like that lady with her with her bags if you've got a great bag and it's you know don't get me wrong you're not going to get ripped off but actually it's lovely you want you want to buy it um and it's you know I've had this with my books that you think oh I can't charge for my books but on the other side of things people say I don't I want you to charge for your books because like I want to buy something that I own I, I want to give somebody the money so I own it you know and that's my one and it's un, it's understanding that it's 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 really just being a bit ridiculous to think anything else yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, it, you know, one last thing. Money is the tool that we that it is a tool. However, it, it's the energy that is attached to it comes from us. It's a conduit for energy, as it were. And if you think about I've got my credit card sitting here on the on the desk, it's nothing sitting there. But essentially, that's money. But it, it's just as it is until we exchange it. And it's when we get into that mode of exchange that the trouble comes. Because it's, you know, you have people that are really good at giving and not very good at receiving. So for instance, I'm gonna write my book and I'm just gonna give them away, right? Yeah. But it's about the exchange. Yeah. And if we can have a healthy, fair exchange, which sometimes takes some negotiating, of course, but if we can get to healthy, fair exchange, which means, that we have to be able to talk about it if we're going to get there, then the world would work a whole heap better. Yeah. Fanny, I think I'm going to have to get you back because I just like could talk to you about this and learn so much. Fanny says, I have a wonderful time in your travels. You're going off to America. You so deserve it. Thank you so much for being such a fabulous guest on the next chapter.
Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. So there you are. Wow, I mean, there's so much to take in. Also, apologies for our dog Cookie barking in the middle of all of that because she clearly obviously wanted to join the conversation. So what next? Well, I'm going to write down some questions and be curious, like Fanny says. What do I really want and what do I really need to learn to get there? I do love this and it just takes away all that fear and worry just by asking these questions. Now, if you want to learn more about Fanny, the link is in the show notes. And money is something I look at in my third book, The Secrets of the Coffee Club. Audrey, the character in the book, and her husband, Gareth, are really struggling financially. But the question is, how far will you go for your children? Audrey is about to step into a whole secret world to find out. Now, this episode is brought to you in partnership with Empire Fighting Chance. They're transforming young lives, and I'm so proud they're supporting our work here too. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, come on, stay curious. What do you need to learn? I think you can do it and funny does too. Speak soon.